Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Todd Hansen. We're at Long Play in Newburgh, Oregon. It's February 2nd, 2022. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, biggest question, is why wine? Yeah, I ask myself that sometimes. Um, for me, it's a cultural thing in many respects, I think. I studied French in high school, and that's what I kind of blame my love of wine on, is I studied French. And then I studied when I studied French, I studied wine once. I went to France, actually, and took um, a summer course where we studied language, grammar, hardcore conjugations and tenses in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we had electives, and one of my electives was wine. And, um, but it, I was already a fan of wine before then. And the, the more I, the, well, wine is one of those things, I, it's kind of like the Beatles. The more you get into it, the more you appreciate it. I think that's certainly true. So... So the more I learned about, like, France, you know, I mean, what, what kind of blows, an example I give is sort of how if you go to Burgundy, you'll have, you'll have three bottles from the same producer, and one will be, like, $28, the other one will be $500, and the other one will be $150. They're in the exact same bottle, the exact same glass, same label, just a little couple words different, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that will carry over to the next producer as well. And it's all about place, you know? And I, I just think that's so cool. I just think that's really neat that the wine can be so unique um, depending on place. And uh, you can't just make a great wine. It, it kind of comes to you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. So take us through your kind of uh, life before wine. Uh, where, where were you born yeah, and raised? And, and, I, uh, I grew up outside of Seattle, actually. And... Um, then I went to University of Washington. Then I worked as a CPA at a CPA firm for a couple of years. Then I went to grad school and majored in international business with a minor in French, if you will. So that's why I had gone to France to sort of brush up on my French language skills. I studied there another summer before. And then I took a job with the International Trade Administration at the U.S. Department of Commerce in Washington, D.C where I spent five years, and there was a little wine shop down the street from me. Um, I lived in Georgetown in a little condo, and um, I kind of enjoyed stopping by that wine shop from time to time and exploring wine. And then um, and I took a course at Georgetown University at night, uh, a French language course, and it just happened to be... Um, a focus on wine as well. It was a culture class. Mm-hmm. So we would learn it. We would, it was called Tour de France. And we would do a tour of France with each department. And we would learn about the wine from that region, the famous poets, artists, writers from that region, the sort of the historical notes from that region. And it was just a really neat class, a really fun teacher too. And it was a, a good group of people, a very diverse group too mm-hmm. in some ways. And so but with a, a love of France really. And then... Uh, we learned a lot about wine there. And then when I traveled with the government, I traveled a lot with the International Trade Administration, as you might imagine. And um, we went to Chile. And what do you do when you're in Chile? You know, um, Maybe you go to the Casablanca Valley for a couple of days if you're there for a few weeks. 
and South Africa, what do you do in South Africa? And, uh, Austria, or, mm-hmm. you know. And so I really enjoyed that wine tourism. And then I was posted in West Africa for a couple of years at the embassy and posted at the U.S. Mission to the European Union for a couple of years in Brussels. Also did a short uh, tour, at, in domestic tour in San Francisco at the regional office there, which was quite convenient. Living in the Marina District, just hop on the bridge every Sunday and go get a couple wineries. Um, so, so yeah, wine was, wine was very much part of my life, let's say, as a, an amateur. And then when... Um, we were living in Brussels. My wife and I, we were gonna have a baby and we decided it would be a lot easier in the United States where we speak the same language as the doctors. We had no idea where I would go after Brussels, but it probably wouldn't be Brussels again. <laughs> it would probably be someplace very much less developed and having been in Abidjan and seeing the challenges some people with very young children face there as far as health concerns and everything. And just the stress it put on my wife being there. We, when we were there, there was some, you know, a little military uprising, popular uprising, bullets through the window type of stuff. So I, I kind of didn't want to go through that with a baby again. Mm-hmm. So again, with a baby, I should say. So, so it was time to change jobs. And I looked for jobs for a little while, and I couldn't really find anything that appealed to me after the excitement of, you know, traveling the world that... Um, sort of held the same allure. I didn't want to be in a cubicle. And so I said, well, maybe I'll buy a wine shop or I'll buy a vineyard, buy a, buy a job, since I couldn't find a job that appealed to me. And uh, the wine shops, I, I, I was frustrated by the fact that they were turning into bars more than wine shops. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm still frustrated by that fact. And so I bought a vineyard. I just, we started looking. We looked in Northern California a little bit we looked in Walla Walla a little bit, um, but when we came here, we said, wow, this is just where we want to be, really. Um, not Northern California, North Central Coast, sort mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, the challenge there is anything I could afford was off-grid and probably four hours, three hours on, you know, part of that dirt road to San Francisco <laughs> just to get to civilization. And um, so we, we liked Portland. I mean, Portland, to me, I say it felt like Seattle felt when I left Seattle. 1990 or whatever. So, or Seattle when I went back to Seattle, I was like, what is this place? You know, it's just crazy how it had changed so much. So we settled on here and we, I was trolling, we worked with an agent, but I was actually just, you know, surfing the web and I found a property for sale and it had been part of uh, Rex Hills Jacob Hart vineyard there on the hillside. They, um, Paul and Paul Hart and Jan Jacobs were selling their business really and shedding a few vineyards to make perhaps I, this is speculation on my part but I believe you know they were shedding some vineyards to maybe market more uh, of an approachable price on the whole business so a few other vineyards went up for sale and um, I fortunately only bought one because <laughs> I, I was tempted to buy two but um, because uh, they were next to each other. They had divided one par- parcel of 50 acres and 50 acres. And I was like, wow, you know, big vineyard. But um, the, the other one got bought before I could make the offer anyhow. And it turns out that was a, a, a wise move because, there's, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of... I, 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 I've, I've joked that if I triple my money, I might break even type of thing because the, the vineyard costs a little bit of money to run. And especially if you are me... 
where I kind of uh, spoil it. Like, you know, I'm not one of those people who changes the oil in my car every 3,000 miles like some people do, I'm, but my vineyard is sort of that mm-hmm. for me where I'll, I, I, do, I do have some things that just annoy me where I've neglected the fence line. I need to replace some section of fence, but I love the vines and I'll, I'll do anything for them. So. so yeah, so I saw this piece of property for sale, called the realtor, we came down, I, we walked around, he said, hmm, you know, this would make complex wines. And I didn't know exactly what he meant at the time. And then I, doing my due diligence, I called Aaron Hess. And he had been the previous winemaker for Rex Hill, but he was no longer affiliated with the brand. And so he was able to speak freely. And he said, you know, I would buy it if I had, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so, and I liked Aaron. I just really liked Aaron. So so I bought it, and we moved down here a few months later. Um, we don't live on the property. We live near Tigard, and just um, started farming. And uh, worked with uh, Results Partners as our vineyard manager at first. And then, well, let's back up a little bit. So as I was buying it, I was trying to sell the grapes or test the market for the grapes. Um, the crop, I bought it in 2005. We didn't close, I think I contracted in June, but we didn't close till October 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that interim, I was trying to you know, test, figure out what I was gonna do with all these grapes. I didn't wanna make wine. I just wanted to drive a tractor, be outdoors, and um, write poetry in the vineyard, I guess. Um, and so I went and visited David Adelsheim and he was just so gracious, and he took me aside, and we opened a bottle of uh, Brian Creek Vineyard, which is not too far from my property. And he, you know, we, we got along reasonably well, and I asked him about buying grapes a little while later, and he said, well, I tell you what, Todd, you go out and sell as much grapes as you can, and I'll buy whatever you can't sell. And that was like, I, in retrospect, that was like one of the most uh, amazing things a person could do, you know, um, just have a backstop there. And so I went to uh, Lynn Pinner-Ash, because she had been the winemaker at Rex Hill before Aaron, and then said, sure, I'd love to get some grapes from that. Oh my gosh. And then she said, do you still have the Sangiovese? <laughs> it's like, uh, I never knew Sangiovese was there. But there were some plantings that were like awkwardly done in 2001, and I think that's what she was talking about. I think they had replaced some vines. And apparently there had also been some Viognier there way back in the day just because 1980 or 1990, you know, I guess, is when it was first planted. They didn't really know what would work on that site. Mm-hmm. And now maybe San Giovese might work, you know? And so she took some fruit and then I called Josh Bergstrom and he's like, do you still have that Chardonnay? And I said, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'll take the Chardonnay. And so Josh took the Chardonnay and some of the Pinot Noir as well. And then I called David Alzheim and said, you know, you've got the rest. And he said, okay, great. And that's how we started out, and that was just really fun. And so, after harvest of in two thousand six, I went to Pinarash. She invited me over, and we did some barrel tasting. And I was just like, "Man, this is a beautiful building, isn't it?" And this is just so such a posh lifestyle she has compared to me, you know, coming <laughs> home with dirt like in every nook and cranny and stuff after I mow or whatever at the vineyard. And so, I said, "I want to do this too." So I called Aaron. And I said, hey, Aaron, you know, I kind of want to make some wine. And Aaron said, it's, you know, I'm 
I've been waiting for you. He knew it would, you know, he knew it was inevitable. And so that's when that partnership started, 2007, where Aaron was my winemaker at 12th and Maple, where he was the head winemaker. And that was a lot of fun. It was, a, it, Aaron, I don't know how well, how much you know about Aaron. Um, he, he passed away in 2011, I believe it was, if memory serves me correct. And he was a very intense person, just uh, intimidating, brilliant, so brilliant. And just, you know, he didn't suffer fools. He didn't even entertain um, the notion of training people, really, unless it was by fire end. <laughs> so, so he taught me quite a few things, though. But he loved to just explain things or, or ideas, you know, that he had about how, you know, doing this at this time and cold soaking for this long, you know, and all, uh, he also was a fan and I've been trying to get other people to um, talk to me about this, where if you needed to do a little acid nudge, maybe to do a little citric at the same time. And because he thought it was more elegant and lighter on the palate and everybody else is so terrified of that. But that was Aaron. He lived on the edge. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, so I worked with Aaron until he left 12th and Maple. And then I needed a new home. And fortunately, I had sold some fruit in 2009 to Heath Payne. Yeah, Heath Payne. And unfortunately, he abandoned his label, like in the, while the fruit was still in barrel, and wound up selling it to Jay Christopher. Or unfortunately for him, fortunate for me. And so when I needed a new home, I um, contacted Jay Summers. And he said, yeah, I've got plenty of room. I've got this fancy brand new winery. Hopefully it'll be done. So I went there and made Jay, you know, said, you know, get this fermenter. Because I had at 12th of Maple, I, they, they would lend me fermenters. Jay, you know, he's like, the fermenter needs to be this fermenter. It's, you know, two and a half ton stainless steel. And, you know, these, these fittings and stuff. So I called up JV Northwest and said, um, I need the J. Christopher fermenters. <laughs> and they knew exactly what I was talking about. And so I bought a couple of those and um, yeah, I was off to the races with Jay. And I mean, what I learned from Jay, I mean, Aaron had kind of expressed this, but Jay really um, sort of drove the point home is trust, kind of to trust the wine, that it tends to fix itself. Don't don't be too anxious if things aren't going exactly according to how they should in the textbook, mm -hmm. because a lot of times it will write itself. I mean, and, and my philosophy has always been that we've been making wine as, you know, uh, humans for thousands of years, and we didn't always have pH meters and all this stuff. So, you know, uh, you can get a little too down in the weeds and maybe you lose the soul, sort of like music, you know, I say. Uh, live recording is more authentic than something that's over-polished, over-dubbed, you know, auto-tuned and remixed. Mm -hmm. so, so that's become my winemaking philosophy, and that's why when it was time to start a wine label, I called it Long Play. Because mm -hmm. I, I said I didn't want a wine that was like a ringtone. I wanted it to be more something that you spend an evening with and maybe enjoy with friends, like you might your favorite record. And... Names are hard to come up with, let me tell you. It's, it's hard to brand something. And I, I'm, I'm still amazed, not, not so much at the wine industry sometimes, but like technology and stuff. When I see some of these great brands out there, it's just like, oh man, that's so clever. How did they come up with that? You know, and I see some that just like, no, that doesn't work. 
yeah, yeah the opposite it's, of that. it's hard yeah um it, i think it's underappreciated how difficult it is to to brand something and i think it's overestimated how important it is to some degree you know because i think what's in the bottle is what counts really because i mean look around us i mean we've got some some we well the joke used to be you know the harder it was to pronounce and you know just be first in the alphabet type of thing you know um i didn't i didn't get that memo with the l but it, it's it's okay and so yeah that's why it's called long play because i say wine's kind of like music a question of taste your favorite song my favorite song couldn't be different but that doesn't make one better than the other necessarily it's just you know a question of taste and um so yeah, so then I was with Jay, Jay Summers until 2017. Um, in 2017, Jay ran out of room in his fancy, beautiful winery. And it is, I mean, it's, it's an amazing facility. And so I went over to Todd Hamina, who was, and this is a, a crazy story, um, Gypsy Dancer Estate, which had been started by Gary Andrews, was being revived by Christine Andrews. And she bought fruit from me. I don't know how we met each other, but she bought some of my favorite fruit. And so I was always jealous of it. And so, um, so she, and she was making the wine with Todd Hammond at his facility in McMinnville. And so, um, yeah, because the turnover in my client base has been kind of, I mean, it hasn't been significant most everybody comes back every year, but every once in a while you lose somebody. So I'm, now I'm, I'm working, for example, with, I lost Jay Christopher after the smoky year. They, or actually they lost their fruit, unfortunately. I felt terrible, but Jay, they had lost Jay as well. So I didn't feel as terrible as I would have. Um, so I, I kept some of that fruit for myself and it was some of the best fruit. And, and I'm building, I built this building and I need a, to expand capacity to sort of justify the rent on this place. So, so yeah, I, um, I was working with uh, Christine in 2016, and then in 2017, I had more fruit than space at Jay Christopher, and Todd Hammond said, come on over, I got plenty of room, because I mentioned it to him, and we'll make some wine here, because I couldn't find anybody to buy the grapes, because it was a fruitful year, 2017. Mm-hmm. So we made some wine together, and Todd Hamina was a big fan of Whole Cluster, and I was always a big fan of Whole Cluster, and Jay wasn't a big fan of Whole Cluster, and Aaron wasn't really, seemed to be a big fan of Whole Cluster. And so um, we did a fermenter of Whole Cluster, and I just really loved it, and I took those barrels and put them in a bottle, and we called it Experience. Um, and it's just a really nice, really nice wine. And so we did that. So after that, I needed a new home, and I went. Uh, I'd been selling fruit to John Groshaw. The first year I sold him fruit was two thousand ten, just like two tons, and um, but he's the nicest guy I think in the industry, and so I mentioned to him, and he had just rented a beautiful new winery down in Amity, and he said, "I got plenty of room. Come on down." And so I went. I went down to there, even though it's a bit of a haul. It's. Um, it was a very nice space and just a very collaborative atmosphere. You had a lot of people making wine there. A little, a little bit of mayhem, but um, that's more my fault probably than anybody else's, just because I've, uh, I'm probably one of the least organized people in the industry. And so we made wine there, and we did. We just piled a fermenter high with full cluster, and it just kind of settled down as it macerated, and it made a beautiful wine. And we did the same thing in 19. And so that's. Um, 
that's where the whole cluster thing came from and I'm moving I don't know if I'll go 100% cluster but you know we might do a few more fermenters next year whole cluster this year we did two and so um, yeah so I was at, at Grosha and you know it was just that 2017 is when I decided I needed my own space because I was being ping-ponged around a little bit mm-hmm. and so I started looking and my vineyard is on an easement that would make it complicated, I think, to build a winery. Also, my neighbors, um, eventually when I abandoned ship or whatever, or decide to change careers again, I don't know when that will be, but it's inevitable. I mean, no one lives forever. Um, I expect one of my neighbors might buy my vineyard and they all have fancy giant wineries. So I don't think they'd want mine. They just they'd say, wow, that's an expensive tractor shed, you know? So, so I didn't want to build the, the winery at the vineyard. And um, I didn't even know I wanted to build a winery, to be honest. I was at this inflection point and I was tempted to sell. Because there were, there were people offering to buy my vineyard and I decided that I didn't want to quit. I didn't want to be a quitter. And in retrospect, I don't, know. I don't know if it was the wise decision, but I realized that I'd been, in 2011, well, let's, let's go back a little bit on the wine. Does that work okay? Yeah. Okay. So 2007, I made wine. I made 500 cases of wine. Talk about a, a great time to start making wine, the 2007 vintage, when nobody wanted to touch the vintage. And the 2006 vintage was so hedonistic and very pleasurable, was on the market, and I'm out there trying to sell 2007s. And then you look around and 2008 comes next. And that's like the vintage of the century. And so I'm sitting on these 2007s and I can't sell them. And I just left them in the warehouse and pretended they didn't exist. And then 2008, oh, I made some, Aaron, Aaron made some really just beautiful wines. Um, and that sort of um, helped me get lifted off the ground a little bit. It was a, I didn't have to sell the wine, I just had to deliver it, really, you know? And then nine was kind of the same story. I didn't run into much trouble with nine. And 10, people were a little more suspicious of 10. It's still one of my favorite vintages of all time. And then um, 2011 was, you know, the coldest year, I think, in record, really. Maybe 1999 might have challenged it. But uh, we finished picking November 2nd, 2011. And... I still love those wines, and but people were suspicious of them to some degree. Um, and I opened a little shop in downtown Newburgh, just trying to maybe move a little bit of the product. And also, what I discovered was it was just so rewarding to build that relationship with customers and see people who actually liked your product and everything. And. Uh, that was it was fun and I really only did it on weekends which was kind of a nice break from the alone time at the farm mm-hmm. where I could interact with other humans and get that social interaction that I kind of was lacking at the vineyard mm-hmm. in my life but two days a week was plenty for me really especially at that level um, although some days it would be just me all by myself um, playing Candy Crush or something <laughs> waiting and you know, listening to music and hoping somebody shows up um, so after doing that for 10 years, um, I knew that that was not going to work. That little shop just didn't have the traction given the tasting room arms race we've seen over the past decade. Um, 
And so I uh, decided to, yeah, that was another compelling reason why I said, let's just go big and build a winery. So I built a winery. Um, and that kind of, you know, I, 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 I remember like in 1989 going down to Napa Valley and tasting at Gurgich in a fly, fruit fly filled 100 square foot basically tasting room on a wooden counter. And um, I kind of missed that element to some degree. I don't know if it's viable these days. And I'm somewhat disappointed in that. I also, I mean, if I were to say my biggest complaint about the wine industry is probably distribution. Um, that it's just so complicated and so dominated by a handful. And then the, the small, there, there's a, a batch of small distributors out there, but they struggle just because they can't. They don't have the market power. And the big three or four um, just eat them for lunch. So I do have one distributor now. I've had several distributors over the years. Um, I've had several distributors go broke, owing me money. Um, so I'm suspicious of distribution uh, at my level, let's say, or it's hard. I have a very good uh, distributor down in California who was introduced to me by John Groshaw and he had called Groshaw saying I want to you know, I want to distribute your wines and Groshaw said hey I already have a distributor in California and I'm too big for you and so and that he was correct you know um, but Jeff is just super he's just super to work with not you know we don't always work perfectly let's say but we we get along we trust there's a level of trust there mm -hmm. and um Partnership. I mean, that's that, for me. I, I think you have to view the business as partnerships. I view my fruit customers as partners. I, um, if you ask them, the way I invoice them is somewhat heterodox. I just sort of, you know, how did you like the fruit? This is how much it cost me to to farm the vineyard. Um, cash basis. Uh, this is how much it would be per ton. You've got better tons than some other people, or you've got, you know tons that are maybe less so I'll bump it up or down a couple hundred dollars and say what do you think of this and usually they're okay with it you know but that's how I don't like written, we have written contacts but I say if you need a written contract you're in the wrong business really um, I'd rather work with people I trust and uh, I think that's something I hope we don't lose as we go by you know with time but yeah a written contract is one page basically says you get these grapes so they know which rows let me know if you want more or less leaf pull and, and I, I go back and forth with the, the customer throughout the year how much leaf pulling do you want how much you know this is what this is what the other customers are doing it's like Patricia Green um, has been a client since 2010 or 11 and Patty would walk the vineyard with me and she had, you know, her opinions and I always was well informed by them. I, I say I, you know, any success I have in the vineyard is from my clients and especially people like Patty Green who would, you know, really give you insight on why she was doing what she was doing when it came to leaf pulling or fruit dropping or, you know, things like that. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's how I work with them. We it's collaborative mm -hmm. you're on the same team I mean my goal and their goal is both you know to make great wine mm -hmm. so. 
just want to back up a second to before you're in Oregon. I'm, I'm curious, uh, as, yeah. as, as you're educating yourself in wine, as you're tasting and you're traveling, are you, have you gathered impressions of the Oregon wine industry at this point? Have you had wines? Yeah. Have you, what, what's, yeah. what's, what is your, before you get here, okay. what's your initial impression of the industry? Well, I didn't, I knew nothing about the industry really. What my Oregon epiphany, if you will, um, was when we lived in San Francisco, we had some friends from out of town. My wife is, um, she's very reliant, perhaps overly reliant sometimes on reviews in newspapers and stuff. She just really likes to read review columns and things like that. And she had read an article in this, I think it was a Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle, about Oregon being the new wine scene. And it had mentioned Domaine Joanne. Or it may have been about them buying the, you know, the vineyard or something. It was, this was 90, this was 2001. And so it was probably a 90, I don't know, a 99 or 98 we drank. But we went to a restaurant with some friends and we saw that on the menu. And she's like, oh, Oregon. And I'm like, oh, yeah, let's try that. You know, everybody turned to me to order the wine because I, I was, had that reputation that I was the one who would order wine when we went to restaurants with friends. And so we bought a bottle of the Domaine Joanne. Just um, and it was so delicious, and we bought another bottle, and it was, it was uh, super delicious. It was a group of six. It was okay, and so, so yeah, that uh, that was my Oregon moment. Was that, and then um, we had another friend in San Francisco who really loved Pinot Noir. I don't know that she loved Oregon that much, but she sort of was just a huge Pinot fan. Mm-hmm. And so, but that was the Oregon bottle that sort of tipped me, and then when we left um, move, after I left Brussels we lived in Seattle for a year really while kind of gathered things up and um, we would buy the Oregon wine was plentiful up there mm-hmm. you could just buy more than I think you can almost here you know in some stores mm-hmm. so yeah I explored Oregon wine up there and we came down here a couple times so as you got here, before I get, I want to talk about the vineyard, but before we talk about the vineyard, I'm curious about once you, once you bought it, mm-hmm. you, you bought into an industry, you hadn't worked here before, nope. you hadn't done anything like that. So tell me about the, uh, the reaction or the, the, the welcome you got, or what, what was it like buying into the industry? So easy. It was so easy. Um, everybody acted like they already knew me in some ways, you know? Um, and I think it was partly the pedigree of the property. I'm, I'm grateful I didn't wind, I had looked at undeveloped properties that I would have, you know, planted myself and everything. And I'm glad I didn't have to have to hold that row because that would have been really hard. I think having me having no reputation in the land, having really no reputation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a good, a good move. Uh, a, a lucky, lucky break. And so, so, um, yeah, we just, and I, I don't know, I'm just naive, I guess. I just, everything was fine, you know. And results partners, to their credit, they were very good about um, making it easy for me as an owner. I mean, they managed for a lot of absentee owners, too. And so, but they allowed me to do what I wanted to do. And uh, as I came to manage or keep some blocks for myself, they would let me sort of get in the way there with my farming. And then... Um, Oh, I'll, I'll touch on this. So back to um, Archery Summit connection. Um, Javier Marin was the, wine, or the vineyard manager at Shea Vineyard for about, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so, right? 
and John Olenek used to own the property just below me, which was called Olenek Vineyard, now owned by Cooper Mountain. Mm. But in 2010, his cousin, Chris Maispink, left Shea, where he was the winemaker before. And Chris and um, Javier were very good friends. And um, so Javier decided he was going to leave Shea as well. And he said probably just because it was the same vineyard year after year, and he wanted to kind of be his own boss. And so he started his own vineyard management company. In 2010, he managed just two vineyards, my vineyard and Olenek Vineyard, with a very small crew that he respectfully poached from. You know, he was careful about who he poached. He didn't, his brother's now the vineyard manager at Shea, so he didn't take his brother. Um, and Javier has, I mean, talk about a partner. I mean, I, we are on the same, I don't, you know, we're on the same page all the time. It's just, it's like we're always on this, you know, work, work so well together. It's, that's the other piece of great luck I have. And that's another reason why I can't retire ever is because as long as Javier is in business, I'll, I'll stay in business. Um, can't sell my vineyard. Um, and so, yeah, Javier allows me to do even more than, you know, and the communication is just, because Javier works in the field. You know, he's, there's no management layer. There's just the, the crew manager who's Javier. And so, um, and he's so flexible. And yeah, so he does the spring, I do the mowing. Um, I tend to, do a lot of the work, hand work in my section when it comes to dropping fruit, things like that, um, perfecting the fruit in the second round. But he does, you know, he and his crew do most of the hard work. I do, I dig the poison oak. Javier is allergic to poison oak, so I get that there. <laughs> I'm allergic to poison oak too, but somebody's got to do it. So my daughter isn't. Um, but yeah, we go and uh, I dig the poison oak and I try to fix broken things. Mm -hmm. yeah. I break a lot of things, so there's that too. So tell me, tell me about the vineyard. Then obviously you, you came in without the background in mm -hmm. vineyard or, or that. So tell me about the vineyard that you inherited or that you that you purchased. What what the condition was and and what you have done uh, yeah. done to it in in the years since. Yeah. So when I walked the vineyard with Mike McLean, the realtor, um, and he said this will make complex wines. I didn't know that was sort of a backhanded compliment in some ways, because <laughs> the the vineyard has. A little bit of undulation, let's say. It's not, it's not a steady slope. It kind of is like a staircase, sort of, with a few dips and swales. Um, and the vineyard has about five acres of some of the best soil in the Willamette Valley. <laughs> and probably about five acres of some of the most challenging soils in the Willamette Valley. And then the rest is, is just sort of your standard soil. You know, nice, but not not amazing. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the area of the vineyard that I call the Jory Bench, actually kind of named by Sterling Fox, um, who used to work as the vineyard manager at Rex Hill, is, um, it, it's just like, I, I say it's like devil's food cake batter. Just the color and the consistency when it's wet or dry. It, you know, it, you can dig as far as you want and never hit a rock, really. It's just amazing. And there's other areas that are just like pure cobble. It's like a, you know, you took a street from Brussels and the Grand Place and just sort of planted it with grapes. And so uh, the downside to that in some respects is Leah's Vineyard mm -hmm. 
does not have a super consistent profile. I say there's a common thread to the wines that come from the vineyard, um, but you wouldn't say, oh, you could taste three barrels and you'd never know it's the same vineyard really unless you were looking for that one sort of common note that shows up because some blocks come in very dark and kind of brawny and some come in, even if it's the same clone. And um, the clonal variation actually is remarkable as well, I, I believe. Um, like 828, I have some 828, it's just so different and I love it. Mm -hmm. um, I have some triple uh, seven, which I planted based on a recommendation from David Adelsheim. Um, and then, and it's, it's, very, it's a very solid component, let's say. And then when I bought the vineyard, it was planted in 1990 initially with some Vadensville or what they called D.H. Swiss, Dundee Hills Swiss, that I think came from a vineyard in, you know, Dundee Hills Vineyard, I think it was actually called even. Mm -hmm. And then there was what was called Pomard, and um, some Muente Chardonnay, two acres of that, two and, a, two and a quarter acres of that. And then way too much, like about... Uh, maybe 11 acres of 115 clone, just this giant swath of 115, which is fine if you're a big winery, but if you're me, I always have 115 for sale because it's just so much of it. And then a little bit at Mariafeld, which is not too common here, and I kind of love it. It's very fun. It's tasty to eat as a table grave too, which is a bonus, and it's easy to farm to some degree. It definitely puts out a lot of fruit if you aren't careful. Um, I probably dropped, it, it's scary how much fruit it will produce, really, at least visually. It's actually not that much in tonnage, it's just the clusters are so loose, they look like, it looks like there's even more. Um, P Patricia Green gets the other little bitty block of that and they get more fruit off of theirs than I do because this is, Javier likes to keep me out of the vineyard around because I'm always dropping any cluster that isn't perfect and, and so, I, and I also don't like crowdiness. I like, I like each cluster to look like, you know, a perfect picture. So, so yeah, I don't get as much fruit off of it as I, could, as I should, probably. And I think it would probably make better wine if I took more fruit out of it. So, yeah. So that's, that's the vineyard. It was planted in 1991. I've initially, 1990, 1991, 1992 were the initial plantings. Then in 1999, they put in that big section of 115. In 2001, they did the two awkward strips of Maria Feld. And then in 2009, I added three and three quarter acres of some 828, 114, and 777. And I did RG on the 777 on the recommendation of David Alzheim. And then I talked to Boyd Teagarden up at Natalie's estate. And I, I was kicking the dirt his vineyard and it looked a lot like the dirt where I was going to plant just the weeds were the same and everything like that or the natural cover we don't call them weeds <laughs> and so so they were the same and I said huh what, you know what kind of rootstock do you have and he said oh I've got SO4 it's great you know it's a plunging rootstock and it you know it doesn't it, it doesn't get moisture stress or anything and so I, I used SO4 on that and I actually really like that decision so far um, and then I added a well, with Javier's uh, suggestion, Javier wants me to plant more always because he kind of gets paid by the acre. So I added another acre of uh, Vadensville, and for that, we took cuttings from some of the old vines 
took them down to Broadacres Nursery down by uh, Aurora mm-hmm. and had them graft it to rootstock and implanted it. And it's, that's just beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, and then we added some pomard, another acre pomard. And then a couple of years ago, I um, dug up some of the old pomard that was uh, phylloxerated. Mm-hmm. I still have some own rooted stuff. And we, it's, I say it's a war of attrition. We just have to, you know, stay ahead of it, and we're we're spoiling them. It's not economical, but it's um, you you don't have vines planted. In, you can't buy vines planted in 1990 today. You know, or plant vines planted in 1990. Mm-hmm. So, so we um, we we keep those vines, and that's what I keep for myself a lot of them. Patricia Green gets a little bit of the old stuff too, and then um, we. Uh, yeah. Oh, we, we, I dug up some of the pomard and we put in some Chardonnay. Because I love my Chardonnay and I only had the two acres and they were in decline. Because that's unrooted and Winte to begin with is going to do small, small crop. The Winte shot berry is just super tiny. And so I, I'm excited for that. I did it as um, every row is a different clone kind of. So I've got like six rows of 96 and 76, but they're like every fourth row or something. I've got, you know, five rows of 75, and it's every fifth row. And then 108, I think I've got two rows, you know, and then I've got the Muscat mm-hmm. um, Chardonnay. I did just two, two or three rows of that. And so I did two acres, and it's, I need to tag those rows so I know which is which. I have it written down somewhere. I'm so afraid I'm going to lose it. And so I want to do Chardonnay. I want to play with it I want to mm-hmm. experiment with that and I'm Chardonnay I kind of love Chardonnay because it's so um, receptive to winemaking whereas Pinot Noir it doesn't like winemaking it's like you just kind of get the fruit and just let it do its thing and stay away um, and you have to pick at the right time and there's there's definitely a discreet right time where I think with Chardonnay the right time is more a question of uh, style and taste and winemaking because um, they're so mallow or no mallow, you know, oak, no oak. Um, and I really am looking forward to having a little more material to work with so I can, hopefully I can sell it um, as wine because I want to keep it because I want to play with it. So, yeah, I just got a new, like, kettle-type fermenter and I want to stainless steel and I want to try that with the... I want to make a, a brighter... Because my Chardonnay, I love my Chardonnay. It's, um, but it's a very serious wine. I wouldn't call it fun, you know? And I've always loved Gruner Veltliner. I have this like hankering to plant some Gruner Veltliner just so I can have something that's quaffable and, and fun. And so I'm going to maybe try to see if I can make a, a stainless steel Chardonnay that's juicy. Mm-hmm. Fun. Yeah. If not, I'll plant Gruner. <laughs> I, I still want to plant Gruner. I don't know if I've got the perfect site for Gruner, but we'll see. When, it, when it's come to learning these kinds of things, both on the farming side, the winemaking side, the style side, tell me about the process for you. How, how, oh, have, yeah. you, how have you educated yourself uh-huh. and how, how, where do you feel you are in the process of sort of finding your style and your, your sort of method? Yeah. So when I was uh, with Results Partners, well, let's talk about the, the vineyard first. With Results Partners, I wanted to learn everything and I kind of, I'd read books, you know, and seen I guess movies and whatnot, but um, I wanted to learn everything, and so there was one just super nice guy who worked for RP, Esuivio, and he 
sort of became my mentor and he would teach me how to prune and how to brush pull. Not that there's a lot to learn there. Just the main thing is where it build caps. So you don't smack your nose so much. And then how, you know, how to tie the vines. That's the most Zen part. I just love, that's my favorite time of year is when we tie the vines in the vineyard and the tip and tie. And you're, you're sort of asking that vine, how much, how much do you want to give me this year? How long should I leave this arm, this cane? And, and then you've got the one next to it and you're like, hmm, you know, maybe this one wants to get a little more than this one. And, and you know, how close do they want to be together? And, and it's just a very Zen um, thing because the vines like kind of speak to you, I think, when that, at that time of year. You have to really listen to the vine. And then, um, yeah, so he taught me that and how, you know, just he, he taught me farming really um, of, of the vineyard. And he didn't really explain why so much but you could just learn, you know? Mm -hmm. And he was so patient with me and just such a nice guy. And then uh, another person who worked for a results partner was Miguel, and he was the same. I mean, he was super to work with as well. And so when I took Javier as my vineyard manager, when I hired him, and uh, like a year later I mentioned, oh yeah, I, you know, I learned from these guys at results partners, Miguel and Isubi, and he's like, oh, Miguel's my brother. I think he's his brother. And, and Esfibio, he's my cousin. <laughs> and so that explained it, you know, that, that's why. Um, but that's where I learned the wine, or the vine growing really was from them, and Javier too, he's a great teacher. And then um, on the winemaking side, Aaron, he would um, just preach. <laughs> he, he didn't really teach the fundamentals, let's say. <laughs> It was a 400 level course right at the start. Um, and then, yeah, and just, and actually my other clients too. Mm -hmm. I would, whenever I would deliver fruit, I always wanted to see it go in the fermenter. I wanted to know how they were doing it. I'd read, um, this was, yeah, I guess, um, uh, North American Pinot Noir by Hager, mm -hmm. John Winthrop Hager. I'd read that when, before I bought the vineyard, I think. And I know it was in Seattle. I was reading, I remember reading it in Seattle. And I was just fascinated by that back of the book where he interviews different wineries and how they make the wine. And some are in, you know, beeswax coated redwood fermenters and others, you know, press when dry, press before dryness, whole cluster, no whole cluster, pick at this point, pick at that point. There's no, it seemed, it, I was so confused because it seemed like there was no right answer. Um, but in reality, you know, it, I think it depends on your goals or whatever mm -hmm. and what you're working with, mm -hmm. the material you're working with. And I don't, I mean, what's, what's funny is I don't imagine that A to B changes that much. You know what I mean? Because the fruit will speak, I think, in some ways. You can ruin it, but I think a lot of times it's just the fruit will speak when it comes to Pinot Noir. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, uh, and so I, I'd go and I was, you know, the only farmer who would help sort the fruit because I just liked I like to see make, see that they took good care of it too mm -hmm. if I didn't feel they were doing a great job they might not get the fruit next year mm -hmm. so as you started making your own wine and you started to kind of pick your own blocks and figure out what kind of so tell me tell me about your you have all these different mentors obviously all these different opinions and as you mentioned there's no necessarily right answer when it comes to Pinot so tell me about finding your sweet spot do you rely purely on what the grapes are telling you, or do you have kind of an end goal in mind with what I, the wine should taste like? Yeah, I, I have a, 
I have an end goal. Um, I'm, but it's shifting constantly, kind of. I like, I like I say, I love whole cluster. I like, but I don't. I like my wines to be. I don't want them to be too terribly austere, but I'm leaning more and more, maybe that way. Um, not you won't see it in 2021, but come 2022, man. Um, I think last year we picked one block, uh, right next to each other, same clone one block of like a week ahead of another one. I like the one we picked a week earlier so much better, even though it wouldn't have met my previous tests. Because Aaron, he would mark the vineyard and he was always like, November 2nd we picked in 2011. That wasn't Aaron. 2010 we picked, or when did we pick 2010? Man, October 30th? 2008 we picked late October, October 30th, I, I believe as well. And we would, he would just, everybody else would be picked. And the birds were coming, you know, and I'd have netting up and they'd still get in the nets. And so, but that was Aaron's style. He liked to pick really late because he wanted the seeds to be brown. And if the seeds are brown and crispy. If you chew the seeds and they aren't bitter, that's when you make the good wine. It's his sort of thing. And so, I, uh, that's, that was sort of my benchmark on when to pick. And winemaking style is sort of from Aaron as well, you know sort of let it sit, long, cold, so not too much. Just let it do its thing. Um, I think I'll start moving with my neighbors and colleagues to earlier picking because it seems to be a trend these days and it seems to make nice wines. I'll say though, um, like I taste wines from maybe some other regions um, and it seems they pick too early to me. I get tastes of pear and lychee and I really don't like that in a red Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. To me, that's fine in a rosé. Um, in red Pinot Noir, I like it to have that. I, I like it at least a strawberry mm-hmm. in cherry. Strawberry and cherry is the sweet spot. Yeah. Even a little plum, depending on the clone. But when you get, I don't want to get to fig, you know. But I don't like the watermelon and lychee and white fruit in my red Pinot Noir. And I think some some places they just kind of almost have to pick at that stage of flavor, right? Because there's there's like five curves of ripeness, I say, or whatever the unholy five curves. And so you've got like desiccation level, you know, which is zoop. You've got green tannin, which goes zoop. You've got I'm doing this from my perspective. You've got um, ripe tannin, which is the velvety, mm-hmm. yummy tannins. And that, you know, that increases as it gets ripe, and it's not linear either. And then you've got acidity, which can fall off a cliff if you aren't careful. And natural acidity is so much better than adjusted acidity that you definitely, you know, we try not to adjust unless we absolutely wind up with like a bland, we'll wind up with a bland product. Because um, nobody wants a wine that doesn't taste good, you know. I would love to stick to my ideals there, but sometimes the fruit doesn't cooperate. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and you're fighting those five curves, really. And um, did I miss it? I don't know. There's sugar levels too, right? Bricks, yeah. You don't want that to go sky high. And so, you're, you're trying to get those to sync up so they all are at the sweet spot at the same time. And that's, that's the hard part, you know? And that's, if I had a crystal ball, you know, and I could know what the weather was going to be and I could maybe do a little better. But, I mean, that also informs your fruit dropping and your leaf pulling and some other decisions you might make you know you mentioned the shift toward whole cluster and that being kind of, being kind of a recent thing tell me was there a wine you had or, or something you worked with that, that, that 
really turned you on to that? And, and what is it about Whole Cluster that, that you find exciting? I, I like the texture. I see, I was listening to um, Levy Dalton, mm-hmm. I'll Drink to that podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I've listened, I think, almost every episode of that. Um, and someone on there, and it wasn't about Whole Cluster, but it was so much, but he was saying that wine is at least 50% flavor or 50% texture. Um, it's not it's not so much about flavor as it is texture and they really like the whole cluster part and a lot of people on that program were big fans of the whole cluster and I had Jamie Kutch's wines from the Sonoma coast I believe is where he make, he gets fruit and I just really love the texture of those wines and the aromatics too gosh whole cluster aromatics and then you know Todd Hamina did that and we had I, Jay did one fermenter not for me but for him with my fruit whole cluster I don't even know if I ever even got to taste it but I um, I just it's just it's just appealed to me it's kind of like you know and, and um, White Rose I'm sorry White Rose Estate mm-hmm. was probably the leader there mm-hmm. they had bought my fruit since 2009 or 2010 2010 because they were picking in the dark it was raining and we had we lined up cars to light the vineyard so we could pick because it was just we had to get the fruit in and it was so but um, Jesus was a big fan of Whole Cluster and at White Rose they had these tall thin fermenters and they let it um, the convection mm-hmm. you know from the Whole Cluster work it's magic and I loved their wines I just loved their wines and I loved watching them make the wines you know loading it and everything it was just fun it was looks and it looked like so much less work too. And uh, Greg Sanders, I listened to an interview with him, and he and I, you know, I knew Greg, but I'd never discussed winemaking philosophy at that level with him. And he had said, you know, well, when the monks were making wine, they didn't have destemmers, and so they just they would just throw the whole thing in. So they probably selected for the better tasting stems, you know, and and it just made so much sense. And yeah, I just it's part of the fruit. So tell me about the the space as we're as we're coming into obviously this this awesome new space here. Tell me about uh, you mentioned kind of looking for the right spot. Uh, mm-hmm. What what was it about here, and, and what what were you looking for, and what what what's what's what are kind of the highlights of what you came up with? Yeah, so I I started looking for a place to build a winery, and I wanted to be in Newburgh. I like Newburgh. I just like the town. The first Fridays had been before I opened my tasting room. I did first Fridays on the art walk there in, in Newburgh, I would set up a card table with a tablecloth and pour you know three samples of wine into a stubby little glass. And I would be at Brown Tarlow, and I was a lot of times at Cusick Picture Frame with Phil Cusick, who's just an institution. And then um, that was, that was um, my introduction to selling wine across the table to people, and that's, uh, that's why I opened my little shop. And then I wanted a place in town, because I, I made that connection with the, the, the local people, even though I would guess less than 20% of my market is Newburgh, you know, but still. And then it's convenient to my home in Tigard. Um, and so I looked around, and this, I was just looking on Land Loop Net or whatever it is, the, one of the websites, and this popped up, and I called, and it was available, and I said, yeah, I'll take it. So... I did a little due diligence, uh, maybe not as much as I should have, 
but I had been talking to architects for years about building my winery, and I really connected with um, Richard Brown, and he had built some fancy wineries, you know, and some more approachable wineries, but he designed Alexana, um, Brooks Winery, and so I, I just really liked the guy. And so I bought this funny pizza slice, it's a triangular piece of land, and I drew sort of a winery on it myself with like a pole barn here and like a little hut at this end for the tasting room. And I sort of showed that to him and he modified a little bit, modified a little bit, and then somehow this popped out of his drawings one day and I was like, that, I don't know about that. <laughs> and then I loved it. And then we, talked you know should it slope this way should it slope that way and we said well it should slope you know this direction because the grapes will come in there and you need more elevation at that end of the building and also that way the solar panels will tilt up and it'll look cooler if the solar panels will tilt it up rather than if there's flush and so that was fun and so and I say it kind of looks like a cyber truck and I'm a big Tesla fan I'm like an Elon fanboy any you know any podcast he's on, his Twitter feed, I just, you know, I just really think he's just, he has a, such a unique perspective. And so, yeah, the, I ordered a Cybertruck the, the day they were launched and whatnot. We'll see if I ever get it. Um, but um, I, uh, I like the building. And so we worked, we worked a lot on it. It was very much a collaborative process, I would say, um, with Hope Telford and uh, Jason over at, Richard Brown, or now it's called Telford Brown Associates, I believe. Or Telford Brown Architecture Design. Telford Brown Design Studio. Yeah, they came up with a, a, a name that just doesn't fit on any box you try to type it into. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, we worked together a lot. I, I could look at my records for how many times I've parked down on 13th Avenue where they're, you know... <laughs> building is but we went back and forth a lot and, it, and it, I mean what blows my mind really to this day is the way they were able to visualize how it would fit on this piece of land just from inside their head you know basically they drew this and plopped it down and the builder was able the builder Josh at Cornus Construction was able to make that translation from drawing to actual building and it just still boggles my mind that it actually fit, you know, that the land, you know, is the right slopes and things like that. It's crazy. Yeah. But it's, it's a place that I think kind of has my vibes and values. It's super, you know, as, as green as we can make. I didn't do lead because I'm not a tick a box kind of guy. It's like I farm the vineyard organically. I'm not yet certified. I may do it because there's, you know, but I just there's enough red tape in this world um, and so yeah we, we do our best mm -hmm. to, to make it as green as possible I'm very conscious of every thing we do mm -hmm. um, I say every day's Earth Day I won't line um, but we aren't ridiculous you know we, so as a space uh, tell me first of all the, the winery side tell me about Obviously, you worked in a lot of places. You worked in yeah, a, lot of, well, yeah. a lot of different and spaces. I, I, Todd Hammond uh, influenced my winery design to some degree. And that he said a unified space is the way to go. Barrel room and, per and fermentation all in one room. 
because then you know you can stack the barrel super high when you're fermenting and you can stack the fermenter super high when you're in barrel and it like gives you so much more space to breathe and you aren't bumping into posts and things like that as much and i i took that advice so we have a unified production space um we have a glycol system, and that's more Aaron's influence because Aaron was really big on temperature control, and it's you know I think it's a hopefully it'll work out as to be a good investment. Mm-hmm. And I think when it hits 115 degrees during the heat bomb, it's probably a good idea to have some ability to cool the place. Um, we also have nighttime cooling in that in that space where the fans go on at 1:30 in the morning or whatever until six in the morning. And change the air in that room during the summer whenever the temperature gets below 58 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that's the production side. Um, we've got big doors, obviously not big enough. Um, but yeah, that's super key too. We, do, we did all the processing outdoors. This, it was an easy, easy vintage for processing outdoors. Mm-hmm. And I expect we have a big canopy over the crushed pad outdoors. So it's nice to be able to process outdoors, which I like to do. The light's good. It's just more room for a forklift to move around. And yeah, as a winemaking space, we've got, you know, water and glycol and compressed air all along that wall, which makes it easy to just plug in the diaphragm pump wherever you want and plug in a, a tank wherever you want and things like that. It's kind of, as a space I like it underneath our feet right here is where we keep the case goods we've got a basement down there um, it's not a lot of fun taking the boxes down this down. <laughs> or we had we had designed in the initial design there was a dumb waiter to raise mm-hmm. and lower the, the case goods but that took up so much room really when it comes down to it and just the expense and structural concerns we just abandoned that and I'm glad we did actually because it would be slow I mean, right now, it's, it's easy enough, and it's good exercise, isn't it? Yeah, I'm looking at Sam over there. Um, so, yeah, that's the... I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's, what about you can see thing? the Shehala Mountains well out the windows when it's not as foggy as it is today, <laughs> and you can see the vineyard kind of when it, when it snows, the vineyard kind of pops off the mountain, but when there's no snow, it kind of blends into the trees. That's, yeah, the trees... A lot of birds. Yeah. <laughs> what about this side of it? What, the the the, pub, the public facing tasting room side of it? What were you, what were you looking for in this space? Well, this room we're in now, I call it the Smithsonian exhibit room, because it's the old tasting room. Just kind of, I just took all the furniture and everything from the old tasting room and plopped it here. <laughs> so it's not permanently going to be this way, probably. But I kind of like it. But eventually, I hope to make it more. The initial plan was to make it a private dining room with one big table for or the big groups or like dinners where you have like the conviviality you get of a long table. Um, but uh, yeah, we gotta sell some wine first. So. And I, I, you know, I have some customers who will probably leave me if I get rid of that, get rid of that couch because it's like so, <laughs> so comfortable. So. You mentioned earlier, um, kind of your introduction to selling wine, and I'm, I'm curious about uh, your your experience selling wine, learning learning to sell wine, and, and yeah. what <laughs> what awesome, amazing success you've had in selling wine. Right. Tell, tell me about the process of learning and the process of 
selling your own product, a product that you've created and, and, and you say you're passing it over the counter to someone? Yeah, I, I can say it's, it's difficult in some ways because it is so personal and like how do you put a price on it mm-hmm. you know it's it's insulting it's like well, how much is my puppy worth you know it's like you don't you don't sell that it's like I'm I want it to go into the right hands you know and I, I realize we should try to maybe sometime in the not too distant future make this a more sustainable project because it, the numbers are bigger now that I've built the building so I need to get some discipline whereas before give or take you know didn't really matter that much when you're only making a few hundred cases it's like oh if i raise if i raise the price three dollars a bottle i'll make three thousand dollars more you know it's like and it's that much more work you know mm-hmm. whereas now when you're making more wine you have to and you have to you know cover some bills it's a little different mm-hmm. so the selling part i don't really like selling the wine i like sharing the wine i don't, I don't really call it selling i um I like that's why I love clubs I love my wine club because that changes that whole relationship because they've already bought it you know it's like your partners on that journey and they see my vineyard year after year after year and so that's the neat part it's obviously music big and big part of you and big part of the place and, and everything so tell me a Tell me about the for you kind of the the intersection of music and wine and, and how they how they feed into each other yeah. and, and how you kind of represent how you want to represent music and wine together. Good question. Um, they're all good. Um, so the <laughs> the wine and music thing. I say wine is kind of like music. They're both sort of an art and science blend. You know, you have to have some structure to the music or it's just noise, and you have to have some structure to the winemaking or it's you know vinegar. And there's there's that delicate dance you do between too much science and too much art and and I think you know music it, it there's there's something um very visceral about music it's like primal where my daughter we were in the car the other day and a Beatles song came on and you know she hadn't heard the song in a couple of years and she's 15 years old but she knew every word you know straight through and this morning we were listening to Fiona Apple's fetch the bolt colors and she can she imitates she does an impersonation of fiona apple that's kind of hilarious but where she does a little trill um i shouldn't say that she'll listen to this someday maybe um but she there's something about music that just connects so much with a person and and you can remember when you hear a song from your youth you can remember where you were even the smells that day you know and it's kind of the same with wine i think sometimes when you get that amazing bottle of wine it takes you in that moment where you just kind of lose your sense of the rest of the world, the complexity of the rest, and it's just there's, there's beauty. And I think there's, there's that similarity there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of, you know, wine and music, they go together in that regard. Mm-hmm. As you've come to kind of, as you have this space now and you're sharing both wine and music together, mm-hmm. do you look for certain music? Do you look for certain wine to go with certain music? Is it just what you feel like that day? It's often what I feel like that day. A lot of times I'll ask the first customer through the door they'll set the tone um so to speak i'll say you know who do you want to listen to and they'll they'll say somebody um sometimes i have the artist sometimes i have the artist and i don't want to listen to the artist that day and so i'll say what's a six degrees separation from that person you know because it's quite if they if they want the beatles i might do the george benson abbey road you know the other side of abbey road album or something even though i love the beatles but i don't want to listen to the beatles every day um and the other thing i consider is whether the music is 
able to be background music as much as I don't like the concept of background music I don't want I mean some bands have a lot of horns or just the vocals are at a pitch that really interferes with conversation so I try to avoid those but I, I like I like 60s and 70s rock um, you know you can put on Dobie Gray some people say he's a one hit wonder but it's a great album you know and the first cut is the his hit you know Fade Away is that what it's called um, I don't know the titles of songs I just you know, you know I, I don't I don't I try not to memorize the titles of the songs I just listen to whole albums and whatnot. and so um, yeah you put that on and people instantly they just they connect with it because it's such an iconic song there's so many albums like that, you know, and, and it's fun to see. And it's fun to, to turn people on to new music, too, you know, some obscure. Like, I love Brian Auger's. I love the Hammond organ. It's, it's, I think it goes well with wine. Um, and it's easy to talk over, really. It's at a nice pitch. And you can do a lot with it. And so, like, Brian Auger's Oblivion Express, when I play that, people, a lot of people are just like, wow, who is this? This is great. And that's fun, you know. So we kind of talked about how you how you've gotten here. So I'm kind of curious, uh, looking ahead now, uh, for let's start sort of with the vineyard. Obviously, you've been adding to it piece by piece by piece, mm-hmm. uh, kind of honing in your style. What do you see looking ahead for the vineyard in, in, in the coming years? I I have a few more acres I can plant. I think some of it is too good for anything but really good Pinot Noir in some ways. There's there's a corner that I might put to Gruner. <laughs> and maybe I, I don't know that I need more Chardonnay although I love Chardonnay um, but just pamper the vineyard mm-hmm. keep it going we we work with um, Ashley I forget her last name it's her first name as well um, but we work with this uh, crop consultant from Nutrient called Ashley she's you know and she's super to work with she walks the vineyard with me and she makes great suggestions um, and we're doing some things to really enrich the soil where the vines are. We've, we've always done that, but with her, it's become easier, let's say, to get the, we've got the daikon radishes growing in the weaker spots, and those will really, I hope, bring a lot of uh, friability to the soil and also enrich it. And, um, and we, we don't do every other row, you know, cultivation. We've usually been a permanent cover, but where we develop weak spots, we'll, we'll cultivate five rows in a row for half the block, mm-hmm. you know, and then throw something, throw compost and heavy cover there. And um, so that's, I mean, that's the main goal right now is to try to get the whole vineyard more uniform in its vigor and more consistent. Mm-hmm. Because we, like I said, you have some swales and those, those are a challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we put in drain field and it, it's only good for for the years, it seems, you know. And what about the space and, and sort of the, the brand? Uh, obviously, yeah. you're, you're making more wine now. So what, 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 what's next for Long Play? What's next for Long Play? Well, I mean, I, I'm wrestling with that. I definitely want to do some food with the wine because I think food and wine... I, I, I never drink wine without food, really, at home. And so I think food shows the wine better, but I definitely want food that shows the wine. So I'm wrestling with that because that would mean kind of bland food to some degree. Um, and I think that's, 
helpful though for people to experience the wine so i don't but i don't want to become food first you know there are some wineries out there that sell food and if you read their reviews it's like that's all anybody talks about nobody talks about the wine i I dread that and i try to drive that point home that we aren't a bar you know we're a retail facility where you can sample the merchandise before you take it home and enjoy it and that's a philosophy i really want to stick with but when we lived in san francisco we went to jay at the time and they would they would do like a little plate of hors d'oeuvres with your tasting and i think that really added to the experience it's, it was super memorable for me um and it was delicious so i don't know if we can approach that level of culinary exquisiteness um I, I, um maybe a fancy building we could um but i i think it helps to have food with the wine mm-hmm. and i i mean the challenge right now is when you only have maybe a couple customers a day especially during this time of year keeping food fresh you know keeping someone in the kitchen even if it's me it's it's tricky mm-hmm. you know it's ski season too so i might i might take a saturday off now and then because my daughter's on the ski team at school so i like to go watch her race even though she doesn't like me to watch her race. It makes her nervous. So. <laughs> but I love to ski, so there's that. And what about uh, with, with the growth of the brand, do you have a, do you have a goal in mind? Do you have a, yeah. number, a number of cases or a number of no, I don't. Well, the, 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 the building is kind of designed to hold the entire vineyard, even if I added a little more. Mm-hmm. So that would be the ultimate goal, is to be a monopole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if we'll get there if we can push that much through it's uh, you know a question of how many club members we can get maybe mm-hmm. um and right now we i think we do about 1200 cases which is not enough it's not viable mm-hmm. when you pencil it out i mean it's obviously it, it doesn't work um so we ha- we have to increase production i think and but you have to sell it and i think i've already uh, expressed my frustration with distributors and so I, you know, I'll stick with Jeff and hopefully his business will take off and he can move more product down in Los Angeles where he's located. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think hopefully if we give people a really good experience, we'll start filling up more and maybe the word will get out. I don't know. I'm, I would say marketing is always my weakest point because I hate I hate being marketed to and I know I'm marketed to you know but I don't know that I'm as uh, susceptible maybe when it comes to wine at least as perhaps other people are mm-hmm. so I don't I, I, I like the product to speak for itself so. you mentioned earlier your your kind of introduction to the industry and, and, and you felt kind of felt at home right away uh, tell me about the industry changes you've seen uh, since then mm-hmm. what, what, what has changed and, and what does the industry look like today to you now a lot, a lot more faces I don't know, but I still, I still know. I mean, this is my cohort. You know, it's like Anne Hubach is. She's been a customer. I think I forget when she started with me, and off and on, she's not with me every year, and that's fine. You know, we just, she's just a, a fun person to work with. And Grosh, John Grosha, you know, last year I had a block of fruit. I, I needed to sell it and he stepped up and said sure not a problem i'll take it you know it's it's still the same in in that regard Mm -hmm. i think there's some that have become maybe a little less approachable in terms of that handshake relationship 
-hmm. but there's still enough of us out there that it's you know Mm -hmm. it's like you already know people when you've only tasted their brand never really interacted with them and I love when the industry gets together um, on sometimes we'll do uh, retrospective tastings Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or we'll go back and do 2000 you know 2013 Pinot Noirs or something like that it's neat it's fun have you noticed, you mentioned more faces you don't know, obviously a massive amount of growth even in the time you've been here. Uh, have you noticed anything change from the perspective of more more big money in here, more big brands in here? Has it affect you? Does it affect your the way you perceive the it, industry? It, well, it can affect me. Well, and I, I blame it on distribution mm-hmm. to some degree. I think it encourages that. And I think um, distribution also... It, it's unfortunate the way the states have sort of corrupted the process, we'll say, of of distribution. And it's, you know, but it's, I mean, it's true of grocery stores. You know what I mean? You've got how many major grocery store chains then a whole bunch of little ones mm-hmm. that struggle. Um, and it's kind of that way with distribution. And, and I think as we get more big wineries it becomes harder for the small grocery store. You know, as we get more big grocery stores, I mean, it's harder for the small grocery store. And it's the same thing with the wine. It's just harder to break through. And I can, I, I can totally relate. Even if I'm a small grocery store, I only want to write one check for wine. I don't want to write 10 checks for the, my wine department. So I might as well work with the one distributor who carries the giant book. Mm-hmm. And, and so I appreciate that. And, you know, I just wish it were simpler. Um, I... Because there's so many parts of our economy that are becoming sort of frictionless with technology, and it, it, it should be we should be able to get there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Blockchain wine. Right? Soon enough, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, then tell me about uh, looking ahead for Oregon wine. Obviously, the last couple of years have been tough for everyone, the industry, <laughs> yeah. no, industry notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, coming off a pandemic, coming off uh, the, the harvest right. of, harvest of 2020, that was uh, that was as, as as bad as it was. Uh, what do you see looking ahead? Uh, how how have you kind of gotten through? And, and and what do you see looking ahead for the industry? Well, I mean, 2020 was a nightmare. It was... I've kind of just erased it somewhat from my memory. We did make a wine. It's a good wine, I think. Um, it, it scared me, let's say, uh, deep down. And I worry about the fires which are completely out of my control mm-hmm. I mean it's there's nothing I can do I feel and so that's that's unsettling especially when if for me it's a big slice of my uh, mm-hmm. livelihood or I don't know if you'd call it a livelihood <laughs> my wife has a good job. Um, it's uh, it's yeah it's unsettling when you can lose that much money in one year and know that it could happen again Again, you know, I'd always said, we always get a crop. We always get a crop, you know, and I never bought crop insurance or anything because we always had a crop. And even during 2011, when there was a lot of dark humor, you know, it's going to be all rosé. And then we had that beautiful month of October. Um, yeah, it, that sort of, it's like, you know, the asteroid hits type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa, is there another one? Yeah. But I think, I, I, I think things will there's a there's there's a lot of things you know there's like the tail wagging the dog when it comes to supply because 
the crop load can vary so much year to year and new vineyards get planted whenever we get a good year, quote unquote, and then, then they come on stream and it kind of overwhelms the market to some degree because the lags are so long, you know, you're, you're driving on ice. And then the, the consumer side, you know, I don't, I, I wrestle with my sort of product oriented focus. I don't want to be an events winery, but I think then it's a treadmill where you just have to do more and more events. And I'd rather my product be what people buy. And I, that's why I'm in this. I'm not in it for the events. I don't, you know, I don't, that's not my business, mm-hmm. right? I want to make wine mm-hmm. that makes people, and, and that's the best part is when, you know, I have the customer who emails me about how they opened a bottle of my Joy Bench Reserve when they told their parents they were expecting their first child, you know, that type of thing. That's, that's so neat when you get, you know, people serve my wines at their weddings and that's just really cool that, they connect with the wine, you know. It's it's a neat thing. It's I don't I don't know if people do that over tires, you know, and stuff. So, yeah. so obviously you you came into the industry kind of an interesting an interesting route into the industry. Uh, if someone were to ask you for your advice uh, on joining the Oregon wine industry mm-hmm. now, yeah, what would you tell them? It's it's a great I mean it's a great group of people, and it's an exciting career or you know undertaking project diversion whatever you make it it's um it's never the same vintage twice which is just so cool and there's so many uh, decision points along the way and you'll never figure it out i've been doing this since 2005 and i still feel like i know nothing you know whereas my previous job after five years i was like i'm 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 the boss you know what i mean and it's just really unique in that regard. And maybe I don't work as hard as I should at, you know, learning, let's say everything. I try to, I try to learn experientially to some degree rather than from studying. I think, I, th- I think um, holistic type approach is more natural when it comes to like learning languages too, you know. I'd, I'd rather learn it more organically than just only books and mm-hmm. things like that. So that's, that's been my approach. And maybe it's not the fastest to greatness. I see some people who are so intentional, whereas I'm maybe just a little more let the wine lead me type of person. Mm-hmm. I, um, I think, yeah, I, 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 my advice also would be there is sort of, it, it's, well, when I started I I had the farm and I found out, you know, one of the things I found is when you make wine, you get invited to much better parties. It's just so much cooler being, you know, having a wine than it is just having a farm. Persona non grata to some degree. And the making the wine, having a wine that you is your own brand is just gets you to good parties and things like that. I, it's just fun to have that little element there. And it's something you can actually buy, which is neat. Um, the the other side I'd say though is you know there's an expression would you rather take a cruise or work on a cruise ship you know and working on the cruise ship not always fun especially uh, depending on what 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 deck you're stuck with <laughs> and so there's that element too you got to bear that in mind it's not not you know just writing poetry in the vineyard as we joke you know it's there's a lot of uh, 
work and hard decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some, no, difficult, yeah. <laughs> some difficult relations, you know. Mm-hmm. It can be challenging. 2020, you know, with customers, some canceled at the last minute, some still took the fruit, some paid me partially even though they didn't take their fruit. It was, um, and I know a lot of them wrestled with that and I hope I wrestle with, I, I'm trying to reconcile that with myself, how I was treated differently by different people and I'm trying to just ignore it and I hope they don't wrestle with it too much either. You know, I, it was a one-off thing and you're gonna react mm-hmm. in the moment and I don't hold grudges. 2020 definitely, as you mentioned, like with, with that harvest, it, 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 it forced a lot of things on people very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I don't know that everybody was at their best, you know, and so I'm not going to hold them to, to everything. So. Appreciate that. So all the questions that I have for you, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? No, I, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned Javier, mm-hmm. who's like my hero. I wanted to mention Aaron Hess, who's, you know, just, I, I, don't, I don't want him to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's pretty. I, those were the two main things, and just the the magic of a vineyard. I think I don't. I hope that was communicated, especially older vines. They just have so much personality. They just they're, they're unique. They're like little kids in some ways. Just, yeah. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for your stories, for your for your candor, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.